everyone, it is Stephanie Postles, the host of Up Next in Commerce. Before we get into our latest interview with another e-commerce leader, I wanted to let you know that the Up Next in Commerce podcast is now available for sponsorship for the first time ever. By partnering with us, your company will be connected to interviews with the most compelling founders, CEOs, VPs, and digital leaders in the world of commerce today. You have nothing to gain but thousands of followers and millions of impressions each and every month. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with our team at Upnext in Commerce. We need to have a clear data strategy, as in what data they need to collect, how they're going to define that data, what technology they'll use to collect that data, and what business outcomes they'll use. And of course, that will evolve because business is dynamic, business changes. It's very important to have a data strategy and then it's important to keep reviewing it and enhancing it. Everyone is excited about AI and the idea of using technology to improve business. But that excitement has also led to confusion. There are many different definitions and applications of AI and few have been able to truly optimize their AI strategy. That's where Ashwin Mittal comes in. Ashwin is the CEO of Course 5, a transformative intelligence company helping companies improve their business using technology like AI and machine learning. On this episode of Up Next in Commerce, Ashwin explains where and how people have gone wrong with AI in the past and the steps an e-commerce company needs to take in order to be able to get the most out of AI. It all starts with understanding and controlling your data, and it includes retraining your employees to rely less on their guts and more on the analysis AI provides. He reveals how to do exactly that on this podcast. Enjoy the episode. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. Respond quickly to changing customer needs with flexible e-commerce connected to marketing, sales, and service. Deliver intelligent commerce experiences your customers can trust across every channel. Together, we're ready for what's next in commerce. Learn more at salesforce.com slash commerce. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Up Next in Commerce. This is your host, Stephanie Postles. And today, we're joined by Ashwin Mittal, the CEO of Course 5 Intelligence. Ashwin, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Stephanie. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on today because throughout a lot of our previous interviews that we've had so far, everyone has mentioned AI in some form or fashion. And when I saw that you were coming on the show and we were going to have a deep dive conversation into AI, I was very excited. Oh, it's a, it's a deep subject to talk about. So yeah, it should be fun. It will be. So what brought you into the world of AI? What got you excited about that and building a company around AI and analytics and all that? So we've always been uh, in the business of delivering insights for sales and marketing to customers from data and information. Um, But uh, about five or six years back, uh, I realized that we are in this uh, perhaps future technology wave of transformation because of the onset of artificial intelligence technology. And uh, from a big picture perspective, uh, you know, if you look back the last uh, 30 years, 40 years, uh, we've perhaps seen two or three waves of substantial change, value creation through technology. We've seen the PC wave and we've seen the internet wave. You can say, okay, maybe there's a separate mobile internet and social media wave or it's part of that. But, you know, both of these have completely changed our personal and professional lives. And one was built on the other, right? Because we had PCs, so you know the internet was that much more ubiquitous. So my belief is that with AI, it's going to be pretty much the same. It will take uh, 15, 20 years to play out, uh, but its impact is going to be as deep and profound as the internet. Uh, and it's going to be built on top of the fact that we all have computers, that we are all connected, all devices are connected. And uh, for us, uh, being in the data business of driving insights from data, uh, we are really in the eye of the storm because uh, the root of uh, AI comes from data science. So on the one hand, uh, while uh, this presents a challenge to our business and possibilities of us getting disrupted, uh, but at the same time, uh, it presents even larger opportunities. 
so at that time, uh, I decided that we needed to really double down on the AI wave and started to completely reorient the business and the company uh, towards riding this wave. Uh, so that's that's really how. That's great. So how would you explain Course 5 Intelligence? What do you all do? What kind of clients do you help? What problems do they come to you with? We help our clients uh, make the best decisions from data and information for sales, marketing, customer-related problems. And within that, one of our largest focus areas is digital and e-commerce. We typically work with uh, large corporates, Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 companies. And uh, in some cases, we might be working with the e-commerce group, their digital group, with the CMO's office, sometimes with IT, or some combination of all of these. Very cool. And you guys have over 1,000 people that you employ, right? Yes, yes. We have 1,200 people. Wow, that's crazy. How long, um, when did you all start? And how long did it take to get to that 1,000-person mark? And what was the change like within your company? That's a, that's a lot of people to manage. Sure, sure, yes. So uh, we've been in business for, what, 16, 17 years. Uh, And we've also, you know, changed and evolved along the way. And, you know, the way you run a company that is 50 people doesn't really work when you're running a company that's 200 people and you need to run a company differently when it's, uh, you know, 500 people and certainly when it's a thousand. Right. So we've also had to learn, change, evolve along the way, how we run the company, you know, what kind of talent we bring in, how we set the organization structure. Uh, and today we are uh, pretty much a global business. We are present in seven, eight different countries, have customers all over the world. So we are sort of a micro multinational uh, on our own. That's great. Is there any um, struggles that you face when it comes to working with your teams around the world that you had to kind of learn along the way? Yes, yes. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So there's one challenge, which is a more difficult challenge, which is culture. There's a second challenge, which is also important, but perhaps not that difficult, which is regulation. Culture is a really tough one, right? It's not as tough today as it used to be maybe seven, eight years back. Today, because of, uh, you know, just the globalization and, you know, easy access to information uh, everywhere, people are a lot more aware of different cultures, different people, uh, and a lot more sensitive and things like that. Uh, But in, in our early years, when we were, uh, globalizing ourselves, uh, we had to learn, you know, about uh, different approaches, different cultures. We had to be very open-minded, and you know, we I think we managed okay, uh, and we're still learning. Uh, you know, it's mm-hmm. important to be sensitive. Uh, culture is an important issue. In terms of regulation, that's somewhat easier. You you know, you just have to follow certain processes, protocols, and make sure that you know you're completely compliant in every geography that you operate. Yeah. And especially in a business like ours, you know, where you're dealing with data and information, and you know, there's a lot of regulation around that, around data privacy and, uh, you know, sensitivity around that and things like that. So we need to just ensure that you know, we are compliant in every geography that we operate. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So everyone talks about AI, like I mentioned, a lot of people mentioned in our previous interviews. And oftentimes I think people think they're using AI or they're referring to something like it's AI and it's actually not. So how would you describe AI and specifically how does AI help e-commerce or could it help e-commerce if people aren't already looking into it? So the first point you made is spot on, right? What is AI? Yeah. And it really means, you know, <laughs> so it really means different things to different people. Yeah. And honestly, there is no one perfect watertight definition. So AI is essentially an umbrella term that covers a bunch of different technologies which are all meant to convey computers getting intelligence, which is not typically expected from computers and which is more human-like, right? Which is, you know, the common sense definition, which we would all uh, accept. But then what falls in that bucket and what doesn't fall in that bucket uh, is different for different people. You know, I'll give you a simple example. Uh, Take a very old technology, something like OCR, optical character recognition. Nobody would call that AI today. Mm-hmm. But when it first came, it came out, maybe some people thought it was, you know, actually computers becoming intelligent, right? Uh, and yep. it was a kind of AI. So, so you know, the definition is also keeping on evolving as our expectations from technology keep changing. Uh, but uh, I would say that amongst the different technologies that 
encompass AI, the core one, the most important one, at least to me, is uh, what you call learning or machine learning. Mm -hmm. And machine learning is essentially the ability of computers to learn, right? And that is, you know, really a game-changing technology. And then that supports all the other technologies that are, you know, typically, you know, under the umbrella term of AI. And where a computer can run a certain process or program and get better at it every time it runs it, which is what humans are good at doing. So that for me is one of the most important uh, technologies. And sorry, you had a second question. You asked about AI and e-commerce. Is that Yes, yeah, how how it impacts e-commerce right now. Like are people, do you think people are using AI efficiently or what do you think the future could look like if they do start implementing this? in a better way? So it's already here. Uh, It is being used uh, extensively, uh, more by some companies, lesser by some. I mean, you know, companies like uh, Amazon are, of course, you know, using it in a very, very mature and sophisticated manner. Uh, But, you know, various types of companies are using it. Many of our clients are using it. And its footprint is increasing. Uh, It's used in automating various tasks, in personalization, uh, in campaigns, even at the back end, in supply chain, inventory management. Uh, we all know that chatbots are used for customer support in AI, uh, in e-commerce. Physical robots are used in warehouses, which also could have AI technology. If it helps, I can give you a couple of examples. Yep, yeah, I think examples would be great. A couple, couple of our platforms, uh, are, uh, you know, which would truly you would consider as AI. Uh, so yep. we have yep. this uh, one platform called Compete. Now, what Compete does is it enables our customers, our clients, to gather competitive intelligence uh, in the market and respond in you know, quick time. So it has technologies and a bunch of bots that go out and search all competitive websites of a brand to collect and synthesize all the information on what the competitors are doing in terms of the five P's. So you traditionally have four P's, product, placement, promotion, and price. And we have a fifth, people reviews. And so it keeps collecting this information in rapid time. And you know, on different product SQUs and different combinations, how competitors are doing, what they're placing, you know, how they're pricing. And then this is updated in a dashboard along with analytics to help the e-commerce players monitor competitive moves and respond quickly so they can optimize their revenue, their profits. Uh, this platform is also used uh, extensively during you know, these uh, major selling seasons like, these, uh, like Black Friday, Cyber Monday, mm-hmm. and brands expect to make substantial sales in a very short period of time. So they have to be very responsive to what you know, the competitors are doing and what's happening in the market. So, uh, so this is one example, uh, one platform that we have. Another one, we call Adomate. And uh, this is really, you know, uh, taking it to the next level where we are using AI to optimize creativity. <laughs> so so <laughs> creativity, exactly. So the AI is not getting creative, just to be clear, and I'll explain to you how it works. Uh, it's not going to take helping. over the world, do <laughs> no, all the no, artwork no. in the future, no, no. write all the books. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's some of that talk going on, but, you know, I think yeah. that you'll always want to read uh, the book written by the author, you'll always want to know about the author, you'll want to see the artwork, which, you know, you want to know the painter's story. So, uh, you know, mm-hmm. while those things might happen, but, you know, I, I don't think that that's going to, you know, to, robots can play sports, right? But you want to watch humans play a football match. Yeah. You don't want to watch robots. Play. They might play better than humans. So it's the same thing with, with art. Yep. But uh, in terms of this platform called Adomate, uh, so what we're doing uh, is we're actually optimizing the process of content creation for either campaigns or advertising. So, uh, you know, when companies typically do campaigns online for e-commerce, they will create, let's say, 100 different uh, creatives, 100 different images, and put them into a system, and then the system will do live optimization depending on who's responding to what, you know, change which creative is being shown to whom. But, you know, you might have missed something fundamental, right? You don't know why something is working, why something is not working. Maybe you miss something in those creatives. Maybe there's some combination of those that you do. So what our AI system does is using computer vision, it actually reads every creative. So it actually looks at the creative and then distills it into structured data. Who are the 
protagonist and the creative or what's their ethnicity, what's their emotion, uh, what the background colors, is the brand shown, is the logo shown, where is it shown. If it's a video, then it'll break it into frames and read each frame. Uh, and so you've got now structured data against each creative. And then you have the data of how people responded to that, who clicked, who bought, which segment. Uh, and you can combine all of that and actually then get prescriptive. So depending on what kind of campaign you want to run, what segment you want to target, you can actually advise, okay, use a dog in this or use, uh, you know, bring the brand in or use red color instead of purple or whatever. So, mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Are a lot of companies using that today where they're actually showing, like personalizing the image or, you know, the product based on who comes in using AI behind the scenes to come up with that in real time? Yeah, so this is an early stage platform. Uh, so it doesn't change the image in real time, though that's also possible. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, my AI head tells me that we should be doing that next. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, it doesn't change the image right now. What it does is it prescribes. So for the next campaign, when you want Got to it. create something, then you would enter into the system what you're trying to achieve and the system might advise you what to do. Or if you have a creative, you can submit it to the system and it'll give you a score of how successful it's likely to be. So this is still, but even that is an early stage platform. This is one of our exciting uh, newer products. And we have maybe three or four customers using it right now, uh, but it's mm-hmm. certainly something that we're betting on. Got it. So when these customers come to you, one thing I think about is when you have a problem, back in my old days at prior companies, a lot of the teams I worked with who were focused on machine learning always told you like, well, you can apply machine learning to a lot of things, but you just have to kind of know the problem and if it's worth solving it with AI and machine learning. How would a company know if the problem that they're maybe encountering is something that could be tackled with AI? Or how do they start thinking about that, especially if they're a smaller company, maybe a D2C company right now, and they are feeling certain pinches in areas, but they're not really sure how to handle that. How do you tell someone to like start thinking about this or how do you have a conversation with someone so they can get this on their radar? Sure, sure. No, great question. And uh, so, you know, it has to go step by step. That's what we always tell. And uh, first, honestly, your data foundation needs to be in place before you should even be thinking and talking. In terms of technology, what data you're collecting, how your metadata is defined, uh, what data sources you're using, what are the connections between all of those. And are you able to establish a single source of truth? So you can't put the card before the horse. You need to make sure you're collecting the right data and you know it's reliable data. Mm-hmm. Then the other, I would say, even more important piece than that is organization culture. So technology is all available. And getting your people aligned to data and technology to drive their actions and decisions is really good. If you're not able to achieve that, then all else will fail. So we tell people that even before you think about advanced analytics or you think about AI, first get your teams into the culture of making decisions through data. You know, we've all made decisions uh, through gut, right? And gut is nothing but some kind of big data swirling in our heads. Yep. And uh, how do we, you know, move from there to letting data take us 80% of the way and then still the top 20% can come through our gut. Because, you know, there are things we know that we, that data, you know, we, we may not have put that data into that system. We may not have been able to capture everything, everything which is in our heads. So mm-hmm. uh, we need to first get that culture in place. Otherwise, you know, uh, the entire analytics and AI agenda won't work. Once we have that in place, then absolutely, then we can uh, start, you know, driving different types of analytics programs and, uh, you know, uh, business outcome-led programs for, you know, higher sales, higher profits for customer, you know, getting better customer experience. Um, And, uh, you know, it's not necessary that every problem, as you said, needs AI, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And depending on uh, the size of the company, the complexity of the problem, sometimes, you know, uh, you you might just be able to deal, you know, use a pre-packaged solution. And there are certain packaged solutions out there which maybe can solve your problem instead of developing something custom. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, if your problem is complex, you know, your data size is large, then, then yes, you can have substantial rewards by deploying an AI solution, which we've seen with many of our enterprise customers. 
Cool. Yeah. Great. Uh, great answer. So when it comes to the companies that are coming to you, what, I mean, there has to be a core theme that many companies are struggling with where, you know, you keep hearing the same, maybe recurring problems or the same thing that they want help with. What is that theme or problem if you could kind of group it together? And what did it look like after they implemented some of your analytics and AI and um, yeah, got assistance from you guys? Kind of like a case study if you have one. Sure, sure. So it depends on the company, uh, what stage of the data and analytics maturity they are at and what their business objectives are. So sometimes uh, we are asked to help with foundational data issues of assessing data quality or building data infrastructure. Uh, We sometimes work with our customers to create access to data, integrate across sources, and just provide them with reports that they can consume to run their business. So in these cases, we might start with a discussion of their business and what data and metrics they need to make decisions and on what frequency. Sometimes we might get asked to choose or implement a specific uh, data technology. And then, you know, for customers who achieve data maturity around data and metrics, then we get asked to drive business outcomes, which could be, you know, conversion in the e-commerce world. It could be conversion rate optimization, could be upsell, cross-sell, customer churn reduction, personalization. And essentially for many clients, we work with them through this life cycle. And this typically takes years. Uh, You know, we first build their data foundation, we provide them with key metrics and intelligence to run the business and then start driving sophisticated analytics programs uh, and then start leveraging AI in a more sophisticated way. Uh, So, uh, you know, this, this is, it's really a journey. It's, and it keeps evolving. So it's not, you know, something that you come in, you do and you finish it. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So what are some of the metrics that you provide to them? When you said you provide metrics to run the business, is there a core set of metrics that you think are really important for every company to look at? Or how do you think about that? So uh, again, it depends on uh, the way they view the business and their needs. And typically this will start with a conversation between us and them of how they run their business, what are the key metrics they, they want to look at. Maybe, you know, we might have a point of view on what metrics they should look at. Uh, but on the tactical side, you know, we might help people optimize metrics or measure metrics like, you know, basic things like weekly revenue, uh, margin, campaign incrementality, you know, lift. So lift is the extent to which a campaign drove sales over and above the regular run rate of the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, these high level metrics could be broken down, you know, to within these metrics you might have sub metrics like average order value, uh, units per transaction. You know, others like that. Got it. Conversion rate typically tends to be a metric of focus. And then, you know, these could be compared to past periods, could be segmented by uh, channel, by device, by geo, by transaction. When it comes to the metrics, is there, have they ever led a company the wrong way where you saw someone looking at a certain metric or data point and they were making decisions off that where it was actually giving them bad information? Or you had to kind of advise them like, you guys shouldn't be looking at this because this isn't helpful. Maybe you should be looking at this instead. Uh, no, absolutely. So that happens all the time. And honestly, it, data, if it's garbage in, it's garbage out. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it's actually a great question because so often we've seen companies uh, and very large, sophisticated companies uh, where different business units, geographies, and departments have built their own data systems and their own infrastructure. And then in that process, they've gone about defining their own data in their own way. Right? To define a certain metric. Every metric needs to be defined in a certain you know, what what that metric essentially means, how it's calculated. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, if you have different uh, geos, different views defining metrics in different ways, and then when you put it all oh, together gosh. and you try and look at it, it makes no sense. Uh, so we've often seen that happen. So it's very important for companies to really have a very clear data foundation and a data strategy and to have a metadata layer, right? Define the data Mm -hmm. uh, beforehand. And often sometimes we have to come in and just do that. You know, sometimes we land up just doing that house cleaning. So if you were to start an e-commerce company today, would you tell them that getting the data aspect right from the start is a priority? Like, should they, you know, make sure they have their data dictionary and they're talking about how they're actually creating their metrics and collecting the right data? Like how should someone think about this 
if they were brand new right now so they could set themselves up for success? So absolutely, absolutely spot on. Uh, so what we call it, you know, what we call it is a data strategy. So they need to have a clear data strategy in place as in what data they need to collect, how they're going to define that data, what technology they'll use to collect that data, and what business outcomes they'll use, they'll drive from that data. And of course, that will evolve because business is dynamic. You know, the business changes, uh, you know, the market changes and what you track, how you, know, you think about things. It has already changed a lot in the last few years and it will continue to change further. Uh, it's very important to have a data strategy and then it's important to keep reviewing it and uh, enhancing it. Mm-hmm. Are there any data points that you recommend people to collect that maybe they're not already? Because I'm sure a lot of the platforms that especially you know, newer brands are on probably collect some level of data, but I don't know if it's the right kind of data or what they really need to help them with that longer term data strategy. Are there any key data points where you're like, make sure you get this, this, and this from the start to really be able to help, you know, build towards the future? Yeah, well, I mean, it's all these ones that I mentioned, right? Like conversion rate, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously traffic, then obviously conversion rate, you know, different points of failure, you know, where, you know, drop off has taken place. Uh, campaign effectiveness, uh, campaign effectiveness by segment. You know, all of these, you know, we, we definitely would recommend that people collect. Uh, you know, one thing we've discovered is uh, even in this today's day and age, you know, one of the biggest failure points uh, which we've talked about for a long time in e-commerce, but it still holds true even today, is just the checkout process. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, the, the customer is willing to give the brand his, his or her money. You know, somewhere there's some, you know, something doesn't work, something doesn't render, uh, some option doesn't come up and, you know, there's a drop off. Uh, so yep. definitely, you know, uh, collect data around the entire journey and where the drop off and all of that happens if it does. And uh, we found that it's remarkable that even today, that seems to be an area of area for improvement. Gotcha. So with all this data that you get access to when you're helping them, you know, build their uh, data strategies and uh, all that kind of stuff, is there any surprises that you've seen when uh, going through some of the customer's data and helping them organize it and build systems around it? Anything that you saw that you weren't expecting? Yeah. So uh, actually, we covered a couple of those uh, challenges that we've seen, but the two, you know, main sort of surprises that we've seen are the two that we just covered is that, you know, one is just like we said, the checkout process, the page takes mm-hmm. too long to load or, you know, it doesn't render on a particular device or particular browser. Uh, and then just the entire confusion around the data asset that the company has and how it's being measured, the metadata. And also, you know, there are opportunities for uh, data sharing with partners and with vendors. And these are really under leveraged. Uh, and uh, if it's done in a, a thoughtful way, it can you know, yield real dividends. So give you one example. We have this uh, major CPG customer and we were uh, helping them you know, with their e-commerce business and with their e-commerce analytics. And then they said, you know, for our e-commerce business, we actually you know, have a different uh, supply chain. Uh, because, you know, we have to compete with, uh, you know, the needs of e-commerce customers, which is very different, right? You know, you need to have uh, quicker delivery times and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, you have to help. So they asked us to help them with their supply chain analytics. So we started doing that. And then we realized, you know, these guys were buying their raw material product from farms, from various farms. And uh, the farms actually have a wealth of data that, can be combined by our customer across various farms to give them back valuable inputs to improve their efficiency and also to improve product quality. So, uh, but, you know, perhaps uh, there wasn't enough advantage being taken of this opportunity. So, you know, I think there are, you know, opportunities that that businesses just don't realize that they're sitting on, uh, which they're able to leverage. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good example. We had a similar example when talking to Grubhub, where they would share their data back with the restaurants to help them improve like, hey, this person, you know, you get maybe a bad review whenever someone orders the nachos, 
versus, or, you know, they order at 5 p.m. Like, what kind of chef do you have at 5 p.m. versus 9 p.m. when you get better reviews? So I think that's a really interesting point about how companies can partner with each other to share data to help each other. But do you think there's any hesitancy around that? Because I could also see companies viewing, you know, even like, I don't know, the farmer as maybe a potential competitor. I mean, if they were kind of, I guess, worried about that or worried about sharing data that, I don't know, could somehow come back and bite them later. Have you seen that hesitancy? Because I do see this as a way of the future, but I just don't know if I've seen enough people doing it yet. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. And that hesitancy is there. And it's a fair uh, sort of, it's a fair concern that, you know, uh, there could be competitive issues. So, for example, you know, uh, uh, so many uh, brands sell direct and sell through marketplaces. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, you know, so what information does the marketplace share with the brand and what information does the brand share with the marketplace? There is some, you know, element of symbiotic, you know, there is a symbiotic benefit because when the brand has its own property, you know, that provides a certain richness of information about the product. You know, and uh, while you know they may still be doing a larger share of their revenue in the marketplace, uh, but these kind of concerns are there. Competitive concerns are there. Uh, then you know uh, there are also concerns about data privacy because data privacy mm-hmm. is a big issue, and uh, it can be done uh, ensuring compliance. But one has to be careful of how one shares the data. What data is shared? Is it masked? Is it personally personally identifiable or not? And then uh, the other issue is, uh, you know, what we spoke about earlier is that they may be defining data in different ways. So different Mm -hmm. entities that are defining their data in different ways, again, if it's shared, it may not lead to the right analyses because uh, it it may actually uh, provide, uh, you know, a different perspective uh, than what it's meant to provide if it's it's defined in different ways between two parties sharing. Yeah, that makes sense. Is there any way that you think it would be best to set up a data sharing program that would also make sure that the company doesn't lose focus? Because like you said, it, it could be a pretty big process to make sure that you're, you know, putting the right data points in there, masking it, like actually giving your supplier or whoever it might be insights. But then I could also see that turning into like 50% of your day job. So how do you, how would you advise a company to think about that if they are thinking about sharing data with a partner so that they also don't lose focus on their own product? So, uh, and some of the, some retailers are doing it uh, today already. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Amazon does it. Amazon has uh, Amazon marketing services where it shares a fair amount of data with its uh, you know, uh, brand partners. And it has certain uh, definitions and certain ways in which it makes it available, which is pretty standard. So then uh, it's up to the brands to take advantage of it and use it in the way that it makes sense for them. Uh, then, you know, there might have be other marketplaces that may be sharing this data in a different way. So that's where we really come in is that, you know, we know how the different formats work and, you know, the different definitions work and we'll bring it together in, let's say, a way, a dashboard that it makes sense for a brand to consume across these different sources. Got it. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. So we keep talking about data definitions and how companies, uh, oftentimes different teams will have different definitions for the data. I have personally experienced this in some of my old roles. And oftentimes it's because, you know, maybe a team is very entrepreneurial where, you know, they're trying to start their own project and they're trying to create their own dashboards. And you just all of a sudden have 20 different organizations using a different metric for, like you said, conversions. Ha- have you seen any best practices for large companies to be able to create like a global spot for people to go and look into that, you know, dictionary to find what this data metric, if it already exists and what it means, like, have you ever seen anything like that, that actually works well? Yeah, I think, you know, it's a great question. Uh, And honestly, there's no real silver bullet, you know, different companies are using different approaches and strategies. And, uh, you know, the entire data and analytics uh, journey is really evolving across companies and different companies uh, have different organization structures today. Uh, so, you know, one thing that works, which has worked for some companies is having a chief data officer mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, somebody who's really, you know, part of the CEO's office and who's empowered to drive that agenda throughout the entire business. But, uh, you know, for certain other types of companies, it doesn't work because they're so fairly diversified. They have different business units that have different needs and they want that dynamism. Uh, so in those cases, you know, it's uh, there is a compromise where, you know, every business then 
goes ahead and uh, sets up its own system and approach and uses that. So then you typically have, on the one hand, you have, let's say, the core operational systems like your accounting and things which work as a single source of truth. And then every business uses what we would call then uh, multiple versions of the truth, which sit on top of a single source of the truth and then they create their own logic. So we've seen both approaches and, you know, both have their pros and cons. Yeah. So when it comes to having some versions of the truth and dashboards, I always get hesitant about dashboards because people can interpret them however they want. So <laughs> how would, I mean, one person might be like, things look great. And the other one might be like, you know, they might expand the time horizon and be like, things look horrible. It all just depends on who's looking at it and what they want to see or what they think they see. So how do you, I mean, you, you say that you are providing data a lot of times for these brands to, you know, make decisions, business decisions off of the data. How do you, or if you do this at all, guide them on maybe like, here's kind of how you should think about this decision, or how do you make sure that dashboards are being read correctly? And this is not just for, you know, your company, but I'm thinking a lot of companies have dashboards that potentially could be, you know, advising people the wrong way. Well, not even advising, providing data and people are reading it the wrong way. Sure, sure. No, absolutely. So there, uh, again, you know, there is a one very important is a people aspect and uh, training aspect is very important of how to use that information, uh, what it means, what it doesn't mean, right? As you said, uh, you know, you can look at something and interpret it in five different ways and one person can say it's great and one person can say it's terrible. Uh, so uh, it's, you know, that training is very important. You know, what, what we do is that uh, we'll set a baseline for expected performance for most key metrics. Uh, and then we have certain tools where we can actually append insights along with those into those dashboards. So what uh, we have this platform called Discovery, uh, where uh, along with dashboards, the system actually generates contextual insights. Uh, so it will, uh, along with a number, it will explain, you know, what that number means and why that number has moved from mm-hmm. you know, one point That's in good. time to another. So then that helps people uh, contextualize that information and as they see that, and they can actually double click on that. So this, uh, this allows people to interact with that information as well to like in a natural way, you can actually chat and receive information back on chat or you can ask a question. And the system will, a basic question, it doesn't do very, very deep questions, but, you know, basic or an analytical question and the system will understand your question, run the calculation and come back and answer. So, you know, oh, things helpful. like this. Uh, yeah, no, exactly. And then, uh, you know, just on a very basic level, you know, uh, as, the, as we work with the business and we understand what they consider as, you know, good, not good, you know, average for certain metrics, we can do things like, you know, color coding, highlighting into dashboards and things, you know, basic things like that, but that can also help to mm-hmm. uh, just contextualize. Very cool. So a couple of times we've mentioned needing to train employees to have that data mindset and to actually know, you know, how to think about data and organize it. Is there any training tools that you recommend or courses or things that you've seen companies have success with by having their employees go through them? Yeah, courses, there are lots and, you know, there are enough courses and there are, you know, lots of uh, great trainers out there. But what is very important is you need to have a couple of internal uh, evangelists within the company. And there's this new term actually in the industry, which has become very popular, uh, citizen data scientists. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you have data scientists, which is like the kind of people we have, you know, the technical people who can who are deep in the data and who can drive the statistics modeling and all that. Uh, but citizen data scientists are essentially the translators. They're the guys who sit in between the executives uh, who are making the decisions and the data scientists at our end. In some cases, the citizen data scientists may even sit in our organization, but mostly they sit in the client's organization. These people play a very important role of driving that awareness and culture within the company. And you know, it's highly recommended that every company either convert some of their existing resources into uh, into that or otherwise they hire some people with that kind of I like that chief data scientist. Yeah, I have heard that quite a bit. And yeah, I think it'd be interesting to have a course depending on, you know, if you're in e-commerce, it'd be nice if there was a certain path that employees could go down to then be well-versed and know how to, you know, operate within their industry. Because it does seem like there's just so many courses 
I don't even know where to begin sometimes with them. And it oftentimes you don't know what you need to learn either. It seems like there needs to start being a little, you know, some tracks that you can go down. That's true. That's true. And, you know, uh, because of AI technology and because of all this transformation, there are lots of new opportunities, also new roles that people can take up. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that now going forward, you know, we should all plan to spend some percent of our time learning. Yeah. So do you see when it comes to skills, do you see people headed in a direction where everyone's kind of becoming a polymath where, you know, they're a jack of all trades with many things? Or do you see people really focusing in on like a specific skill? Like I am an expert with AI for retail. Like that's my, that's my lane that I swim in. How do you see the future shaping up for skills? So I think that there is always a need uh, and an increasing need, of course, right now for specialists, but uh, there will also always be a need for good generalists mm-hmm. because you need specialists who can be deep in a certain function or technology, especially in disciplines like AI. But at the same time, we need generalists who can make sense of all these different pieces and plug them together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think there are both career tracks are there, but you should just be clear which one of the two you want to be. Yeah. If you're trying to be both, then you then you know you're setting yourself up. So for everyone listening, you're good either way. Whatever one you are, you just have to choose. <laughs> so to zoom out a little bit into the general e-commerce industry, what trends or patterns are you most excited about for digital commerce? You know, now we are in the midst of a, a human crisis, right? So the humanitarian crisis with the COVID pandemic. And uh, of course, we are all very mindful of the human tragedy, you know, the hardship, the economic hardship it's put on people you know, all over the world. Uh, but this crisis has presented to really accelerate uh, you know, digital transformation and the use of digital channels. And we have seen companies that have had uh, digital transformation plans that have been one year, two years, three years long, and then... Now they're talking, okay, we're going to accelerate and do this in two weeks, three weeks. And it's actually becoming possible. So what was thought to be impossible is actually becoming possible. So we're seeing that, you know, uh, if people really want to get these things done, they can. Mm -hmm. It has the potential to be, you know, digital has the potential to be much more personalized, more predictive and become auto commerce. Uh, So it offers a better experience for the customer. And it is good in other ways. It is good for social good as well, because you can argue that it will reduce to some extent the impact of climate change, uh, you know, less traffic, less congestion, less travel. And, uh, you know, people will get uh, more family time, right, for exercise or hobbies or what have you. Uh, so digital commerce brings with it a lot of social benefits uh, uh, as well, and which I'm quite excited about. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. It definitely seems like a lot of things have sped up very quickly. And it's interesting watching the companies. There's a couple that I've been following who just aren't moving to e-commerce. How do you view companies like that who are taking a strong stance not to go online? You know, uh, it's interesting. Uh, While I do think that the industry at large is moving towards e-commerce and digital, uh, not just digital commerce, but digital everything, right? Digital entertainment, digital customer experience, digital communication. And, uh, you know, most brands will need to do that to be successful. But, uh, you know, sometimes there is always a market for those few uh, contra players, right? Because there may be some mm-hmm. consumers who may just want, uh, not want that, uh, you know, uh, new approach or new technology. And, who may and they might have a nice boutique customer base who, uh, who works with them. It won't last forever, but maybe it might yeah. help them for, you know, maybe the next seven, eight years. I don't know. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see. So when it comes to everything that's been happening with the pandemic, how do you lead in times of change at your company or personally? Um, so a leader that has inspired me uh, from his book uh, was uh, Satya Nadella at Microsoft. Mm-hmm. So in his book, one quote that really stood out for me was, you know, he wrote that the C in CEO stands for culture. And he also talked about the uh, importance of empathy in leadership. And so I had taken it upon myself to foster the organizational culture that we want to have, the culture that ties us together and that is helping us. And that is really helping us in these times, that that culture that we fostered, which is bringing us all together. You know, along with that uh, empathy, understanding of the challenges people are going through as, you know, uh, it's not just 
affecting work from home, but anxiety about the disease, anxiety about the economic future. And uh, along with that, regular communication, uh, transparency in the communication. So these are some of my key priorities which are driving my actions in this crisis. That's great. Are, are there any challenges that you face when it comes to working remotely? It's actually been quite a surprise uh, the pandemic hit and when we had to transition to work from home across all our different geographies and 1,200 people moving to work from home. And I'm really surprised at how effective it's been. And, uh, you know, the work that we do is iterative. It requires, you know, uh, collaboration and things like that. And it's it's working fine. Uh, And it seems like, you know, Thankfully, this happened at a time where, you know, all these technologies had evolved, uh, you know, like Microsoft Teams and Zoom and others, mm-hmm. where it's, uh, you know, still become very much possible. Uh, and uh, it's now I wonder why we used to be in offices all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I was and, wondering and that too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so it's not just us, it's the whole industry, you know, just thinking these things. We still need offices, you know, for bonding, uh, for having certain hard conversations. Uh, for inducting mm-hmm. new employees, for fostering our organization culture. Uh, but we don't you know, need them all the time, right? Maybe we can have 60, 70, 80% work from home. I don't know what the right balance is we've discovered. Are you changing that at your company? Are you having, like when you all, when you can go back, are you only having a certain portion of your employees go back? Or how are you thinking about that? Yeah. So we've not taken a clear decision yet, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, it will be, Definitely at least 50% uh, work from home, maybe more, could be 60-70%. And we'll just have to experiment and find the right answer. Uh, we also want to see how things change when, you know, the pandemic isn't there and, you know, uh, and then how that changes people's orientation. But at least 50% work from home and maybe much more is uh, very much doable. And hopefully people have good balance of engagement in office and at the same time, you know, better better quality of life because of community. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, in terms of the pandemic, uh, more than, you know, while work is not suffering, but uh, the bigger issue is the emotional challenge, mm-hmm. right? You know, as I said earlier, people are, you know, not meeting their colleagues, not meeting their friends. Uh, so, uh, you know, they have anxiety. So here we've tried to do a lot of things. We've tried to engage people through various activities like talent, virtual talent contests and things like that. Fine. Uh, We're providing lots of, yeah. So in lot, lot, you know, I'm amazed at the kind of talent we have in the company. You know, people are singing and drawing and cooking. Oh, that's cool. Uh, we've had, uh, we've had uh, different types of training. I rolled out a new skill learning challenge where I challenged every employee to learn a new skill that will enhance their career in the next 60 days. And I said, how are they tracking I, that? So it's not mandated. It's, it's just a challenge, uh, which is free for everyone to sign up for or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the end of 60 days, if you have done it, you can report. Uh, and there'll be a prize for pers- person or people who have enhanced their career prospects the most. And prizes for leaders who have helped their team members uh, enhance their career prospects. That's great. And just to set an example, I said, I'll learn how to program and write code in Python. So, so, oh, uh, so, and I found, you know, and it's been fun. I'm doing it with yeah. my daughter. It's, it's been fun. And we also, you know, are providing some uh, resources for things like mental health uh, counseling and things like that if people are feeling you know, anxiety and you know, depression. That's great. Really good examples of things that other companies could take and implement on their own too, especially the talent thing. That's really fun. All right. So you probably get this question a lot, but I have to end the interview because I'm sure a lot of people have asked you this or want to know this. Do you think that AI will replace jobs or will it just augment jobs? And maybe some will uh, not be around anymore, but it'll also create new opportunities. How, what's your take on that? Sure. No, that's a great question. And that's a question that is, you know, so many books have been written on it and, you know, there's so much discussion in the industry. I'll just give you my point. And there are some people who think, quite differently as well. But uh, AI, what AI does is AI doesn't really automate jobs. It automates tasks. And uh, when you think of a job, any person's job is made up of a bunch of different tasks. Typically, what we've seen is the AI systems will automate some of those tasks. So that person is not becoming redundant, but some of their tasks are freed up. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
Uh, and so then that gives the opportunity to, that in, to use that individual to then uh, do other things, to drive more personalized experiences, to take the business to the next level uh, and things like that. But then that requires that right orientation in that individual, and then requires uh, training, uh, you know, the company to provide uh, that training to those people or for the people to, you know, also take interest and, you know, uh, train themselves through resources available. Uh, so like I said, I think that now everybody in this new environment will have to consistently keep training and, you know, uh, upgrading their skills. Uh, but uh, do I think that uh, AI is going to come and replace all the jobs? No, I don't think so. I think it will free up, uh, free us up from certain tasks and will enable us to widen the scope of what we do. Love that. That is a good, positive way to end the interview before we move into the lightning round. Oh, the lightning round. Okay, that sounds, uh, that sounds <laughs> interesting. That sounds like fun. So the lightning round is where I ask a question and you have one minute or less to answer. And we will start with some easier ones. Once you can travel again, what's up next in your travel destinations? Oh, wow. Okay, well, I'd love to go to the Maldives. Uh, that's, nice. uh, yeah, I'd like to go and do some scuba diving. That sounds amazing. What's up next on your Netflix or Hulu or wherever you watch TV shows? What are you watching? So I'm currently watching Money Heist on Netflix. I don't know if you're mm-hmm. uh, watching Money Heist. I haven't. Heist. It's a uh, dubbed uh, Spanish, but dubbed in English show. Pretty cool. Uh, and I also like the historical genre. So I'm watching uh, some shows like Last Kingdom and Vikings. Mm-hmm. That sounds good. I'll have to check those out. What's up next on your reading list other than Python 101 manuals? So that is taking up some of my reading time right now. <laughs> uh, and, you know, uh, I'm trying to be disciplined about not wasting time consuming just unlimited amount of, you know, coronavirus news and doing more yes. productive things. Uh, so yep. I'm reading uh, right now, I'm reading The Alliance by Reid Hoffman. And I'm mm-hmm. also reading uh, Why Should Anyone Be Led by You, Robert Coffey. Oh, good. I will have to check out that second one. I've heard of the first one. All right. The last harder question. What one thing will have the biggest impact on e-commerce in the next year? Well, what's already had the biggest impact is, is the COVID crisis. Uh, but in the next one to two to three years, I think it's going to be here. Yeah. Well, that's a perfect way to sum up the interview then. Ashwin, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been a blast and we will have to talk again soon. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie. It's been a pleasure. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.